welcome to the latest episode of Public Power Now. I'm Paul Schimpoli, News Director at APPA. Our guests on this episode are Doug Hunter, CEO and General Manager of Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems, and Mason Baker, General Counsel at UAMPS. Doug, who has served as CEO and General Manager of UAMPS for 27 years and has worked at the Joint Action Agency a total of 39 years with UAMPS, is retiring from UAMPS. Mason, who has worked at UAMPS since 2011, will take over as CEO and General Manager of UAMPS at the start of 2023. Doug and Mason, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So, um, Doug, I um, wanted to start off with you in terms of the, the, this podcast episode uh, and talk about your, your lengthy career at the, the Joint Action Agency. Could you give an overview of your career path there? Of course, yeah. It really starts uh, before UAMPS uh, with the predecessor organization that uh, set uh, Utah Associated Municipal Power Systems uh, up, really called the Intermountain Consumer Power Association which was an association of uh, rural electric cooperatives as well as municipal power systems, mainly in the state of Utah. And I started in uh, 1979 uh, working on resource development uh, back then. I was, uh, to be honest, I was the ninth employee hired by the group. And uh, the concept was is that that uh, umbrella organization of uh, Intermountain Consumer Power Association, ICPA, was to basically staff all of the development of uh, the projects that they were looking at back at that point in time. And so it got me in on the ground floor and things. And as the organization uh, grew and expanded and developed resources, uh, my role uh, just naturally progressed up with promotions and responsibility uh, changes in my job and that to, to eventually um, I was I went, you know, came up through uh, resource development, as I said, through transmission access, uh, things of that nature, and then became assistant general manager and then eventually uh, came in as the chief executive officer, as you just said, 27 years ago. So it was, uh, I can say I I went through all aspects of the public power organization. I don't think, at one time I was even answering phones during an emergency when it had anybody out there. We used to answer phones. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Reception, I assume. Well, and I'd say that the, the your path there is kind of a, the more I talk to to CEOs of various public power utilities, there, there seems to be a relatively consistent theme in terms of a lot of people being um, at a utility for a long amount of time and and charting a path um, towards becoming CEO. So um, thanks for giving that overview. So Doug, I also wanted to follow up with you in terms of the second question, which is wanted to when you look at your legacy at UAMPS, what are you most proud of in terms of of your accomplishments there? Well, you know, that when I uh, was aware of the question, it's really hard to pick one. You know, it's sort of like saying, which of your children do you love the most? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that there's so many. But I think uh, some of the most profound er, things or or, uh, concepts that went on that really helped the membership was uh, the concept. The big one was uh, breaking the transmission monopoly of Utah Power and Light, an investor-owned utility in the area at that time, now Rocky Mountain subdivision of Pacific Corp and uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, Group. But uh, we really had to go through a challenge to uh, get access, and it took uh, through the concept of the merger between Utah Power and Light and Pacific Power and Light for us to be able to find a venue, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, 
to open that up. And the reason I think it's such a huge accomplishment is because it finally allowed us to buy power in a more competitive manner. We still didn't have the what we were going to see the future power markets that we see today. We're not really there. But we, for instance, entered into a contract for 200 megawatts with Idaho Power Company, our neighbor to the north, uh, that we couldn't get to before. And it was much lower price than what we could buy in Utah. And it was just a huge benefit to the members. Uh, their rates were stabilized. They, they, which uh, in turn, you know, economic development comes about that population growth comes to that due to low electric rates and stabilization. So I'd say that's probably the largest, but I'd also like to throw in, we built a lot of projects. UAMPS has been very successful in, in putting, um, if you will, steel in the ground when we need it uh, to uh, stabilize the, uh, again, rates structures for the members so we for instance we built the first combined cycle natural gas plant in the state of utah before the investor-owned utility did went on which is now pretty much the norm uh you know we we contemplate we took we purchased and from coal plants around the the west in terms of ownership as well as power sales contracts and basically grew the membership so i think um it, you know but i think it all this you know the transmission access was by far and away the most um, uh, viable uh, future endeavor that we took on successfully. So I'm very pleased with that. Next question is is for both of you, um, and Mason, perhaps you could start in terms of the response. Wanted to know if you guys could talk about the transition in terms of preparing for Mason to take the reins as CEO and general manager, and and how have the two of you been collaborating to ensure a smooth path? Sure, I, I can lead off. The, the nice thing about the, the transition really is that we've had a fair amount of time to, to work through it. And, you know, I can say from, from my perspective, that has been great insofar as I've been able to sort of incrementally wade into these deep waters of, of uh, leading the organization. And, you know, going back even to the, the midsummer, this past summer, you know, started really doing some engagement with the staff starting uh, an active dialogue with the staff as far as you know what my perspectives look like taking over the organization from doug and and leading it um, what my priorities would be and and having that time to do that i think has been incredibly important um, because even though i'm an internal candidate i mean the reality is is that it is a big change, and it's been really nice just to have had the time with staff to have a dialogue, you know, really over the last sort of five and a half months or so, and doing a lot of um, all staff meetings, had a big um, offsite in July, a staff retreat, and been doing the same thing with the board as well. Um, had a big strategic planning session with the board back in, in October. So, you know, from my perspective, it's it's allowed the organization the opportunity to focus on, you know, what the next steps will be for the organization and have good alignment between the board and the staff on what that looks like. And I'll say, you know, the staff's been very engaged in doing the strategic planning, as has the board itself. So we actually just adopted a strategic plan yesterday that we'll start implementing in 2023. Doug, did you have anything you wanted to add? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Mason's right on, and uh, I just accent it this way, is that that was 
the way we really wanted to to set it up. We wanted to, when I say we, the board and all that, uh, obviously they they knew of my decision in 21 that I was not going to uh, go past the end of this year. And that was an important transition point, I think, for the organization. And uh, the se- the second thing we set up is that we wanted the organization not to feel any negative impact to any transition as it went through. As Mason said, internal candidates, you'd think that that would be a very small probability, but as Mason pointed out, it does still take a, a lot of work to make that a smooth transition. And so we established, we went back with the board and established a procedure of how we were going to go through it and put it in and then implemented it. And so that planning process, I think, allowed for this uh, smooth transition that we're we're finishing up right now. Thanks, Doug. Um, so Mason, um, wanted to ask you the next question, and, and you mentioned your priorities in your in your last response. So could you talk about your goals uh, in terms of once you officially become CEO and general manager, both for next year as well as beyond? Sure. And you know, not surprisingly, a lot of these goals are embedded in the new strategic plan that we just adopted. But I'll, I'll quickly go through some of them, um, and I'll also highlight some of the the challenges that we are facing here in the West for our organization in particular. Uh, so probably f- um, maybe the one of the higher priority ones is managing our membership exposure to the wholesale electric market, which is having increasing volatility to it as we have a lot of the existing dispatchable capacity being retired and there have been a lot of new generation coming on in the form of renewables, but that is recreate that's creates some volume uncertainty given their intermittent nature. And then more recently, we've been seeing a tremendous amount of volatility based on um, our increasing reliance on natural gas as a fuel in the West. So that is something that we'll be focusing on heavily. And I'd say that that strategic goal also relates to another one, which is getting new resources online for our members. Uh, We have a membership that has been experiencing a lot, a lot of load growth, and we have a strong need to bring on new resources. You know, we're um, very aggressive in that space, but the reality is is that it's going to take a significant amount of time to bring those new resources on due to supply chain constraints other uh, constraints such as transmission, just being able to uh, get them on the grid, uh, given transmission upgrades that need to happen. So those are those are probably the, the first two. Overarching goal is continuing to meet our mission as UAMPs to provide affordable electric energy services to our members. And that is being challenged by the existing market conditions that we're seeing, because we are in a in a in a new world where uh, you know really just the price of electricity is going up and we're starting to really get a better sense of that and our forward sense is that it's going to continue to go up other strategic goals um strengthening the UAMP's workforce we have um some incredibly long tenured employees and we want to figure out how to make sure that that continues to be the case uh, especially as you know, we have candidly a new generation of workforce that we will be bringing into the organization and making sure that it's an organization that they're 
excited to come to work every day, but also uh, excited to stay here for their entire career. So that that's a big one for me because I, I take that responsibility very, very seriously as the CEO, perhaps, you know, my number one priority um, that will enable all the other strategic goals to be successful. So I might just leave it there. I mean, they, we do have other uh, strategic goals, but I'd say those are probably the four more, most important ones. So you, you touched upon some challenges specific to UAMPs. And so my last question, I wanted to focus on kind of looking at the stepping back and looking at the broader utility sector and wanted to get your both of your thoughts in terms of um, what you see as those challenges facing the utility sector and how is UAMPs positioned to successfully meet those challenges? So, Doug, did you want to take take first crack at that? Yeah, I could take, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, given my perspective and uh, through public power, I've got a really good feel for the uh, the national implications. But it's very similar to, I guess, any other utility, whether it's investor-owned or cooperatively-owned. And that's going to be uh, reliable capacity onto the system to, to you know, maintain the type of uh, power structure that we're so used to, you know, uh, the 8,760 hours a year of uh, reliable uh firm power available to us. And I think that's a real challenge that it's going to be, uh, it's made it's made difficult to meet that challenge because the perception of the public, and it's probably our fault as much as anybody else, the utilities fault, in terms of not educating the populace in general. But we're fighting a, a constant battle of, oh, you can just do it with renewables, you know, you, in this transition, or you can you know, you you uh, you don't have to, you know, you could conserve, you could, you know, we, we just don't need to be, build additional capacity resources. And, you know, and in the state of California, it's pretty profound. I mean, they've got a plan. I'm not critical of their goals and their things they're going to do, but it's a challenging plan. And it's an example of what the whole country may be going through to go through. And I think that's really something we've all got to continue to work on. We work very closely, UAMPs, and uh, and through APPA as well, uh, with the other utilities to try and coordinate and become, what you say, more united in our response and uh, efforts to convince everybody that we need a mix of all, you know, uh, of these things. Uh, obviously, renewables, conservation, and that, but we also need to have new inertia put back onto the system in the form of I think nuclear is going to be the the main uh, work dog there for that one, but it could be other things. Uh, there'll still be hydro, you know, AMP has uh, uh, has been good at trying to put more of that, but that's going to be small. And I I, I don't think it's going to be gas. I just really don't think that we may see that transitionally, but it's going to be very difficult to that. And obviously storage and other things. But I think that's probably the the largest challenge I see for the industry as a whole. Okay, great, Mason. Well, it's not going to be a surprise here. I, I concur with Doug. I mean, I think, uh, you know, as I look at it, um, I'll just sort of, I think, say pretty much the same thing, just a little differently. What we're embarking on is this big decarbonization transition. And the resource mix on the supply side that we have today is going to be very different from what it is 15 years from now. And the challenge, and I like how Doug identified the communication issue we have with the general public, because there is that perception, you know, that we, you know, frankly should just be uh, just focusing on renewables. And we know as utility folks that that's just not going to get the job done. 
Um, so what does that leave us with to make sure that we have the reliable 8760 power to turn on the lights? And I'm very bullish on nuclear, some resource just like that to make sure that we are able to meet our reliability goals. But that brings with brings with it a lot of challenges because it's one of those that type of resource and the development around it is one of those generational resources that takes an incredible incredible amount of effort uh, to bring to fruition. Uh, but we have to do that. Um, we can't just do and you know renewables given supply chain constraints they're not easy but they're certainly easier than uh, doing a 40-year asset like a nuclear plant but i think that type of asset is necessary because we have those generational assets retiring right now and we need to figure out how to replace them so from my perspective nuclear is that type of asset there's certainly other ones that could come about as technology uh, improves, um, but we need to be doing uh, what's available now. Um, nuclear is available now. It does have a long development horizon, but from my vantage point, it makes sense for the industry to invest in those development activities while doing um, other resources. I, I concur with Doug, I don't think gas is a generational resource. I do think it has a place over the next um, 15 years as a transitional resource, but I don't see it much beyond that, just sort of my perspective. Um, the last thing I'd say is that you put all this together, it's just a tremendous amount of new resource development. And we've seen the supply chain issues during COVID. Uh, we've seen project management issues, and I, I think, as we move forward, just making sure that we spend a lot of time on the workforce side of this to make sure that we've got a workforce that can handle this big transition, bringing all these new resources on online. You know, there's labor considerations that also bring with it challenges. So there's a tremendous amount of, of work to do. I'm, I'm excited um, to take on the challenge to the UAM staff is, but it's going to be a very, very busy time uh, that I, I don't know if as an industry we've ever uh, took on this type of new resource procurement. So it's going to be a very dynamic period of time uh, for the next for the foreseeable future. Yeah, Mason, one uh, follow up if I could. So we, you both of you touched upon um, public perceptions, for example, the, there's an idea out there that well, renewables should be able to handle all uh, capacity challenges or demands going forwards, and, and the reality is it's different. Um, so with respect to nuclear, you know, in the past, I think it's fair to say that, that there, there have been some quarters who've questioned the, you know, that as, as, a, as a resource long term. But now I'm, I, I feel like more recently you've had, for example, in California, um, you know, an effort to keep a, a nuclear power plant there going over a longer operational lifetime. So do, do you feel like there's a, a a shift in terms of the public's attitudes towards nuclear these days? I, I do, and, and Doug should weigh in on this as well. Um, but, you know, as we've been working on our nuclear project, the Carbon Free Power Project, we've been, Paul, we've been working on that really since 2012 working with NewScale as the technology provider 
And from my experience during the last 10 years or so working through that is the public attitude has changed where there is more reception to it. Uh, I think, as you just referenced, um, even coming out of California, that's encouraging. Um, but I, I still think that, you know, we've got a ways to go. You know, there there are other factors that I believe the the public is becoming more and more aware of, but we certainly need to continue to communicate on the practical realities of doing the amount of renewable generation and, you know, can we do that amount of renewable generation and not run into all sorts of land use challenges. I, I don't think that we can um, do the amount of renewable generation that many forecasts without running into serious land use challenges. Um, and you know that's a value characteristic of nuclear that is incredibly impactful, the, the energy density of the resource from a land use perspective that I think really sets it apart and something that w folks are starting to become more and more aware of. I think that there is uh, a better dialogue about land use considerations, um, especially in the West, as we sort of wake up to what it would really mean to uh, deploy the amount of solar and wind and landscape impacts associated with it. But, you know, having spent a lot of time also working back in D.C. on our nuclear project, I'd say the um, there's been growing bipartisan support for it as well. Um, so that's just maybe another metric to look at where folks recognize the opportunity that nuclear can bring with it as far as meeting our decarbonization goals and doing it in a, in a practical manner and uh, getting to the quicker. I mean, the last thing I'll say before turning it to Doug is just if without nuclear, I, I see, you know, any decarbonization goals getting pushed to the right considerably, you know, 15, 20 years easy, uh, just based on the reality of trying to just do it with wind, solar and batteries. Yeah, I could, uh, Paul, I could briefly uh, just put this in because uh, everything Mason said is just spot right on uh, in terms of what's going on. But uh, one of the challenges we had coming into this was that uh, UAMPS was really one of the only, if not the only, uh, one proposing new nuclear in the nation, investor-owned, co-op, you know, who, whatever you want to name. And that is what has changed now. I think with the uh, advent of small modular reactor, it's allowed the utilities to put this into their future resource plans, which will then provide a public forum for debate on alternatives if people are opposed to that. And I think that's a, a, a monumental change that's happened here in the last little bit. And it gives me great hope that we will be able to turn the corner on this lack of capacity uh, going into the future. So I think there's been a lot of movement that way. Uh, and just a final follow-up for both of you, that you, which you both touched upon, uh, intrigues me in terms of 
public education overall, um, I mean, I guess one thing kind of jumps in my mind always is electric vehicles. Um, I'm not always sure that the customers who buy EVs are aware of kind of what's on the other side of the cord and in terms of increasing demand in a particular community. So do you guys feel like, um, I mean, how much further do, do we have to go in terms of the industry, public power in particular, working to educate customers on things like EV use, for example, or the fact that renewables in and of themselves uh, at the end of the day won't solve all of the the ch- challenge related to meeting low growth. Well, uh, maybe I just jump in really quickly with the the comment that uh, I think the education is very important, and I think it it has taken on a more specific point, and it's the infrastructure required to make that transition to electric vehicles. I agree it's not gonna, you know, I let Mason go into the long-term goals and that he's very versed on it, but uh, I'll use an example, uh, Southern California Power Agency uh, Authority down in, in uh, California in terms of just uh, getting electric vehicles in the Los Angeles Harbor area for the trucks to go in and out of the ports and that's a big goal of the state of California, and it's going to require a massive in- investment requirement. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars over a very short period of time because we have to be able to fast charge, and this will happen even in uh, residential areas. We're going to have to charge these things in a relatively fast time, and the current infrastructure in our distribution system is not capable of doing that. It just simply is not, and that investment, that's one thing that people are not talking about, they're not focusing to, and it really needs to to come about at education. Mason? Yeah, thanks, Doug. I, I would say um, you know, I agree with Doug and, you know, as as a joint action agency, I think there's a lot of opportunities that we can act on as far as providing those educational materials so our members can disseminate them uh, within uh, their member communities, uh, because one thing that I, I see in public power a lot is that we are viewed as a trusted voice, and um, that's that's a real benefit as far as getting uh, those points across. So we need to take advantage of that, and um, that's something it is actually within our strategic plan is trying to help identify what sort of communication materials like the one you just mentioned, Paul, that we could help put together for our members? Because a lot of our members, um, and I think this is probably similar to you know, a lot of public power entities that are, are seeing a lot of growth, is that they're just um, running flat out all their staff. So that's the advantage of being involved in a joint action agency. And in my view is you know that we're we're here to make their lives easier. So if we're able to put together template educational materials that they can use to better educate on EV. We actually just had a a round table last month on EVs and what sort of things we could be providing for our members. So there's there's a lot of opportunity within the communication space to get our message out there. And again, I I think that, you know, we are viewed as trusted and based on our our existing reputation. So we need to continue to make sure that we communicate and continue to um, be viewed as a trusted partner in this space because, um, you know, we, we truly are um, UAMPS and its members, you know, our, our objectives are completely aligned to do what's in the best interest of our communities. So 
the community members do trust us and we want to make sure that we retain their trust. Well, Doug, enjoy your retirement. Uh, it's well earned. So I just wanted to thank you again for for uh, for participating in this. Uh, and Mason, um, would love to have you back at some point in the future. Maybe we can revisit some of these topics, see how the strategic plan is going. And I wanted to, again, thank both of you for taking the time of your day to, to, to speak with me. You're welcome, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Paul. Enjoyed it. Sure thing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Power Now. We're encouraging listeners of Public Power Now to take a few minutes to complete APPA's new reader survey, which seeks feedback on this podcast as well as other APPA news offerings. Go to publicpower.org slash reader survey. I'm Paul Champoli, and we'll be back soon with more from the world of public power. 